this morning, then, let us return to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to choose for our text there verse 38, but we will be looking from verse 35 in order that we might fully uh, grasp what Jesus is saying to his disciples in verse 38, which reads, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And the title I want to give to the sermon this morning is A Prayer to Pray. A Prayer to Pray. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We have similar words in the book of Luke in that gospel also. Here, these words are said before he sends out the disciples on what what was probably their first mission without him. But in Luke's gospel, these words are quoted after he sent out the disciples to preach the gospel. We're going to look, as I said, from verse 35 in order that we might get to our text in verse 38. And there are four things that I'd like to highlight from these verses for our edification uh, this morning. Four things concerning our Savior. Four things that reveal unto us something of the, the character and the attributes of the Lord Jesus. And most of us here today would profess faith in him. And therefore, we are to glean and we are to learn from his life, the way that he conducted his life. We cannot, of course, go to Calvary. We cannot do what he did on Calvary. Jesus Christ alone can offer up himself as a once-for-all perfect sacrifice to make atonement for sin. None of us can do that. All that we can do regarding that transaction is to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done what no one could possibly do. But we are to walk in his footsteps. And if we're followers of Jesus, we are to follow his life, his pattern. It's an example for us. It truly is a tremendous example, of course. It's a perfect example, and we will fail on many occasions. But nevertheless, we are to aspire to be like Christ. And therefore, there are four things that I wish to highlight basically from these four verses that remind us of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we would notice as we look at verse 35 here, we have a committed Jesus, a committed Jesus. This chapter is really a chapter of action. It's a chapter of recording many things that the Lord Jesus Christ 
He, he healed many people, a man sick of the palsy. He calls Levi a tax collector, a wonderful calling of this sinner at the receipt of custom as he was gratifying his lusts and desire for wealth and for power. Here, the Lord Jesus calls him from that wicked occupation and calls him to be a disciple and ultimately to be a, an apostle. What else? Well, he healed the, the lady who had a, an issue of blood. He raised a life, Jairus' daughter. He cured blind people and someone who was dumb. He was able to open this man's mouth so that he spoke. And really this passage here, this chapter, is full of action, is full of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really at verse 35, we have a summary. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. What are we to glean from this? Well, we are to glean, obviously, that Jesus was very committed to the work that lay at hand to him. He wasn't going to go to Calvary at this time. He would go at the appointed time. He knew, ultimately, that he had to suffer and to die. But before that, there was work to be done in the kingdom of God, and he was going to do that work, and he was fully, 100% committed to that work. Something similar said earlier on in Matthew's gospel. I'm not going to quote it to you, but in verse in chapter four, he went on another sort of preaching tour where he went about various cities and villages, and much the same thing is said about him there before he then delivered his great sermon on the mount. And what we're meant to derive from it that Jesus Christ was a working individual. He was one who was absorbed in the kingdom of God and the affairs of the kingdom of God. And he was one who did what he could, whatever he went. He was teaching, he was preaching, he was healing, he was, doing, he was going about doing good. What are we told here in this verse 35? Teaching in their synagogues. Friends, we have to grasp and realize for our edification that when Jesus went to the synagogues, there would be many things in the synagogues that would not please him. Many things there that would not be according to the scriptures. They were a place where, in some sense, God was worshipped and adored, but those who were leaders and those who conducted services, very often the things that they said and the things that they imposed upon the worshipers was not according to the word of God. And Jesus would be able to find many faults in these synagogue services. But what do we find? We find him in the synagogues, in the synagogues, despite the deficiencies despite the errors, despite the things that were contrary to the word of God as, as had been revealed to the Jews, yet he was there. He didn't excuse himself from the public means of grace. He didn't use any excuse. He was there. 
went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. And he was using that time to teach and to preach. He had a mission, and nothing was going to distract him. The gathered public means of grace, he would be found there. It tells us here about cities and villages. Now, when the Bible talks about cities, we're not to look at these things like like the city of Glasgow or the city of Edinburgh. They were much, much smaller, of course. But Jesus frequented the places that were regarded as having a large population. But he did not confine himself to where there was just a large amount of people. He went into the villages. He went into the hamlets. He went into the where there was one street. And maybe there wasn't even a synagogue there. Jesus did not overlook any opportunity in order to proclaim the kingdom of God. Because, friends, he took the view that one soul is precious. One soul. And if we're going to be in glory, and if by the grace of God we are going to be used to bring one's other soul to glory, what a reward that will be for us. What a reward for a Christian who has got to glory himself by the grace of God, and Jesus Christ has used him in order to bring another soul to glory. We can't all be Spurgeons. We can't all be the Apostle Paul who founded Christians and who was instrumental in converting thousands. And so the same could be said for the other apostles like Peter. But Jesus, he didn't just focus on the large crowds. He went where there was a handful, to the crofts, we might say, to the hamlets in our time, to the little places, whatever the people were. He would not confine himself, teaching, preaching, healing. And what we have here in the scriptures is not a full account of what Jesus did. Are we not told someone in John's gospel towards the end that if everything was to be recorded about what Jesus did, the whole world could not contain the books that would be written? This is telling us that Jesus himself was a laborer. He was active in the kingdom of God. Peter says, in Acts chapter 10, talking about the life of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. What we're meant to take from that in connection, what we're speaking about today is, friends, Jesus, who went about doing good. Before I move on to my next heading, what good are you doing? 
Christian, open your life. Open the book of your life. What good are you doing? It's a very sobering question. Jesus went about doing good. People could see it. It was clear and evident. He didn't do what he did in a corner. Oh, he didn't look for publicity. And very often he's, he would tell someone after that person had been healed, basically, don't say a word, keep it quiet. But everyone knew that he was one who went about doing good. What good are we doing? We can look at this in two ways. Are we doing good? And maybe we, we can look at it another way. We might be doing good. And we might look at it and say, well, what good am I really doing? In what effect is all the good I'm doing? What effect is it having? This is something a, a minister can ask himself. What good is all my preaching doing? What good is all that I do concerning the ministry? Here I am. I am involved in, in the work of the Lord. I'm in the kingdom. I'm seeking to do good. But what good is it doing? We have to be careful when we look at these things because we're not going to be held accountable for results. Blessed be God for that. God alone gives results. Paul can plant and Apollos can water, but God alone gives the increase. And so we must be careful. We may well be doing good as individuals, as a congregation, and yet when we look for fruit, when we look for evidence of that good, we cannot see it. We're not to be despondent. We're not to despair. We are to be obedient. We are to do what we can and not to worry about the results and not to worry about what we cannot do. There's many things we might like to do, but we cannot do it. We must do what we can. Jesus was committed. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we delight to meditate upon this. The Lord Jesus Christ was compassionate. Oh, the Savior we recommend to you this morning, the Savior that we seek to serve, we understand and recognize he is a compassionate Savior. Many Christians are not compassionate. And this is something we want to stir up within ourselves, that we would be more like Christ, that we would be more compassionate. And here we find it in verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Here we notice, friends, first of all, we notice in this, in this verse here how God had been faithful to the covenant that he had made with Abraham. Did he not promise Abraham an innumerable seed? like the stars above or like the, or like the sand below. They were to have a, an innumerable multitude that would come from the loins of Abraham. 
and from Isaac and from Jacob. And that's what happened here. At the time of Christ, there was multitudes. There was a nation that were in the promised land. Yes, they had difficulties, but nevertheless, God had remained a faithful covenant, keeping God to them. And there was multitudes who had come from the loins of Abraham. When it looked, humanly speaking, that the covenant could never be fulfilled. But it was through Isaac. And as he looked at the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them. Why? Because they fainted. Now, friends, I'm inclined to think this has nothing to do with uh, physical fainting. He had been in the synagogues. He had heard the teaching and the preaching of others. And no doubt he taught himself in the synagogue. And the people were fainting. Fainting. Why were they fainting? They were fainting because the people in the synagogues were teaching them things that are contrary to the word of God. They were imposing upon them man-made laws and traditions. And they were purporting them to be the word of God, the law of God. And these poor people were fainting under the burden of man-made laws and regulations. And Jesus had compassion on them because these people were up to their neck in man-made religion. And they were lost and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. The people who were in the synagogues who were the office bearers in the synagogues, those who conducted the services, and those who had oversight of those in the synagogue, they should have been leading them and guiding them in the things of God. And if they had known the scriptures, they should have been leading them to come to believe upon the Messiah who was right in the midst of them. Instead, the poor people were fainting. And instead of drawing them to the Savior, they should have been preparing the people for the day when the Messiah would come and that they would put their faith and hope in him. Instead, these people were scattered abroad. The Lord Jesus Christ has not lost his compassion. He sits in heaven today. And he has given a message of reconciliation to his, to his church to go forth and to proclaim that message. And that message is ultimately about the compassion of Christ and how Christ has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we are to accurately convey that message to wherever we will get an audience. And we should seek to know something of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at our lives, we see how far we have failed. He was moved with compassion on them. Oh, sinner, this morning as you sit here, as you hear something of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, let it be known from this pulpit this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ has compassion on you, and that compassion has compelled him to go to the cross 
and to suffer and die like no one else. That there on the cross, he suffered the pains of hell, and he suffered the pains of hell in order that, like, that sinners like you might be saved and that you might put your faith and hope and trust upon him. He has compassion, and we recommend and commend a compassionate Savior to you this morning. And if you will perish, friend, it's not because of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ is lacking. It is because you will not come. You will not avail yourself of the compassion of the Savior. These poor people were under the care and the tutelage of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests, and most of them were false. They were legalists. They were religious people, but they knew nothing of the grace of God themselves. And they were blind people leading the blind. And Christ had compassion. We can see similarities with the church today, can we not? Full of people who should never be anywhere near a pulpit. Who know not the Savior themselves and who cannot point them to that one who alone can save them. Thirdly, we have what I've described here as common sense Jesus. Common sense Jesus. Then saith he, in verse 37, then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Very often Christians are regarded as people who are otherworldly. What do I mean? Well, they're not living in the real world, many people will see. That we're too heavenly minded to be any earthly use they might see. Well, Jesus Christ was completely and utterly, in one sense, rooted and grounded upon the world that he lived in. He operated in a common sense manner. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is a, a unique individual. He is both God and man. But here we're looking at him as a man. And as a man, he had limitations. He could only be in one synagogue at one time. He couldn't be in all the synagogues. He couldn't evangelize the whole of Israel in one go at one time. He was limited in that sense as a man. And he recognized this. And he says unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. In other words, here he is being active, doing what he can, morning, noon, and night. He's involved in kingdom work. He doesn't take a break or rarely takes a break. 
He's always engaged. It's always full on with the master. But he recognizes this task is too great for one individual. Too great. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. He was gathering together those who would ultimately labor in the kingdom of God, go forth and to preach the gospel. He would have here, as he spoke, he would have his 12 apostles. He would have others who would be regarded as disciples. We cannot tell how many he had. Certainly 12, maybe another 50 or so disciples. Who knows? We cannot tell. But he recognized that the harvest is truly plentiful. And even with what he's got, he needs more. He needs more laborers to go into the harvest field. Are we not in exactly the same position? Is it not true, friends, today that the harvest truly is plenteous? Can we not see even in our own city how many laborers are there? How many people are perishing? How many people are on that broad road that leads to destruction? Why? Maybe even some here this morning are on that broad road that leads to destruction. The harvest truly is plenteous. We need more laborers because the laborers we have are few. And therefore, Jesus takes a common sense approach. And now, friends, fourthly, we have arrived at our text. We're not going to dwell too long on it, but we have arrived at the text that I wish to highlight with you. For here we have the commissioning Jesus. The commissioning Jesus. He tells us in our text, verse 38, Pray ye there for the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Notice, first of all, having outlined the plenteous harvest and the fact that laborers are few, notice, first of all, what he does not say. He does not say, go. He does not say to them, go. And very often, this is what we think. When we see the harvest, how great it is, and we see how few laborers there are, we're inclined then to say, oh, well, we'll go. Or I'll go. I'll do something about it. But that's not what Jesus says at all. Another response that often happens when, when we realize the the vastness of the harvest and the lack of the laborers. Another thing that sometimes we do is we write a check. We'll give something to the work. We'll give from our resources to the work. Again, Jesus does not say that. What does he say? Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We are to make this first and foremost a matter of prayer. 
It may well be that as we pray, that we will be the answer to our own prayers. That's what happened to the disciples. He then sent them out. But first and foremost, the first thing is to pray. Everyone finds prayer difficult. Everyone. <laughs> you might think that uh, a minister of religion finds prayer easy. That's not the case. Public prayer is not easy. Private prayer is not easy. Anyone who knows anything about prayer will tell you it's not easy. It's difficult. It's work that you have to plod on with. And when it's difficult, that's the time to pray. But here, friends, we have an encouragement to pray. Here we have a, a command from the Lord Jesus, a command maybe that we don't appreciate. If we find prayer difficult, here is something that Jesus commands that we pray about. Here we have a topic. Very often, we don't have a topic. We don't know what to pray for. Jesus here is telling us what we're to pray for. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, and so on. Here is something we can adopt. Here is something that Jesus has given to his church. He knows it's difficult to pray. Here is something to stimulate that we might pray for a specific need. Notice what we're to pray for. Laborers. Laborers. Jesus was a laborer. He's not looking for loiterers. He's not looking for lazy individuals. He's looking for people who will labor in the great harvest, who will do what is required, who will stick at a job, who will be in for the, the long haul, who will not be disappointed when results don't go their way, who will keep going. This is what we find with the Lord Jesus. He was at this particular time in his ministry the subject of public approval, we might say. He didn't face much opposition in the early part of his ministry. But as you know, as he went on, he encountered more opposition hatred, bitterness. Ultimately, they wanted to kill him, and they did on Calvary's tree. But it's laborers, people who will work. And that's the hardest thing you'll find today. Even in secular employment, it's hard to find people who will work. And so it is in kingdom work. That's why we're to pray that God would call people to be laborers, that he would equip them, that he would enable them, that he would give them what is required. 
And it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's not just academic prowess. It's that stickability. It's that determination. It is that desire to go on and on, regardless of what may happen. And notice also, too, which we might find strange. He doesn't ask us to pray for the unconverted. The harvest truly is great. We might think, oh, well, we'll pray for conversions. And there's a place for that. No one's going to deny it. But here, he recognizes the greatest need is for laborers, not for conversions. Some of us might know very little about harvest and harvest time. I would put myself in that position. But what I do know about the harvest is that when it's ripe, when it's ready, the farmer wants to get his harvest in as quickly as possible. He doesn't have a great uh, window of opportunity. When it's ready, he goes. When it's ready, he gathers all his workforce, all his machinery, all that's required, and they work. They work through the night. They'll gather the harvest. It, he wants to gather it in quickly before it rots. And that's what happens. And as it is in the natural, so it is in the spiritual. And therefore, this prayer is urgent. It's urgent upon the church. And this is a prayer to pray that God would give us laborers to work in his, in his harvest. His harvest. Not ours, but his. And this would tell us it is the Lord's work and it is to be done in the Lord's way. What have we got here then? We have a committed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a compassionate Savior. We have a common sense Savior who recognizes his limitations at that time. And we have one who has commissioned us to pray this prayer with his approval. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. This is a prayer for us, a prayer to pray. Amen.